Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. And there are Bibles on the table. If you didn't grab one, as Jenna just gave an example there, please get up and grab one because don't take my word for it. Track along with us in the Word of God. Um, this morning, we're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to look today at part two of a, a study I've titled, How God's Work of Revival Continued. Our main text is going to be all of Nehemiah chapter 10, but for some context here, last week we saw the children of Israel gather. This is not like an uncommon thing as we've been seeing in the, the last few studies, them gathering together, something happening, God doing something in the lives of His people. And, and this time they gathered on the 24th day of the seventh month with mourning and fasting, and they're wearing sackcloth, they're they have dust on their heads. They've separated themselves from the foreigners. They're, they're standing con- and confessing sin. They're reading from the book of law of the law of God for three hours. And then for another three hours, they're confessing their sins to the Lord and, and worshiping the Lord. And this is a, a significant scene considering that this wasn't a, a set or prescribed day for this sort of thing to happen according to Mosaic law. It wasn't prompted by the priests or Levites, or by Nehemiah, God was doing something. All of it a result of the continuing work of revival that the Spirit of God had been working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. And for the majority of chapter 9, we read a fairly large chunk of Scripture last week, we, we saw this amazing corporate prayer, the, likely the longest prayer in all of Scripture recorded for us where confession of sin and worship of God was, was central in all of it. The, the work of revival that God had begun in His people, as we saw in chapter 8, He was continuing to do. And, and along with that, last week I referenced some things from a Bible teacher and commentator, Alan Redpath, who has this really great book on the book of Nehemiah, studies in Nehemiah, where he, he gave some really great principles of revival from that chapter. We considered three of those four principles of revival last week, the first being a return to brokenheartedness, second was a reflection upon God's goodness, and then third, a recognition of our sinfulness. And then I mentioned the fourth principle of revival that Alan Redpath gave, which he emphasized in verse 38 of chapter 9, but, but we didn't go in depth on that because we're going to see that in greater detail in our uh, chapter today. But let's actually begin our time by reading verse 38 of chapter 9, just the last verse of the chapter there. It says, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. So this worker revival that God was continuing to do didn't end with the people just mourning and fasting and confessing, and it didn't end with them just worshiping, but these things led to them wanting to to really commit themselves fully to the Lord. And this is seen in the covenant they were about to write, and all who were going to sign it and seal it. And I mentioned this fourth principle of revival that Alan Redpath pointed out that we're going to now consider to a greater degree this morning. But he he said the fourth principle of revival is the renewal of our obedience. He went on to say in chapter 10, 
you will see a covenant which the people made with God. Now, the fact that they soon broke it should never discourage us from a similar sacred covenant. In the Old Testament, the obedience of God's people was impelled by law, whereas ours is inspired by love. I want you to notice that the obedience of God's people touched every part of their lives, their home life, their social life, and their church life. He went on to say, revival is not simply an emotional upheaval. It leads to action. So with that in mind, let's get into chapter 10. Look at the list of people who placed their seal on the covenant that was being made. And we're going to look at each of these names in depth. No, we're not doing that. It's a joke. (laughs) 27 verses later. We are going to read that section of verses, though, verses 1 through 27. Strap on your name reading cap. Here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Now those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah, Sareah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests. Verse 9, the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Binui, of the sons of Henadad and Kadmiel, their brethren, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Kalita, Peleah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zachur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodijah, Bani, and Beninu. Beninu. We're, we're doing this, guys. We got this with the Lord's help. The leaders of the people, verse 14, Parash, Pehath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ater, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodijah, Hashum, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anea, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilhash, Shobek, Rehum, Heshabna, Maseah, Ahijah, Hanan, Anan, maybe they were twins, Maluk, Harim, and Bana. Thought the same thing with Bonnie and Booney. It's like, did you picture that? Like, that's a very like twin thing to do. You guys didn't do that. I'm proud of you. No, I'm just kidding. Not that that's wrong. You can name twins that's similar. Anyways, moving on. We did it. Notice in verse 1 that it started with Nehemiah. And this is significant to me because Nehemiah, just months earlier, he, he didn't even live there. He didn't know these people. He wasn't connected to the things that were going on. He was over 800 miles away, grew up under the the reign of the the kings of Persia, and God stirred his heart and moved him to come to Judea, to be in Jerusalem, to to rally the people around this work of rebuilding and, 
And, and what a significant thing that someone who really was an outsider in some senses, even though he was a, a fellow Jew, these were his countrymen, that the first person to place his name on this seal signifying this, this revival, this renewal of commitment, was a guy that really was not a part of the problem to begin with, not in the, not in the real sense of being there and, and, and kind of perpetuating the, the brokenness that existed for so long. God used an outsider to help bring this work of revival. And, and I love it that God will often do the same sorts of things in our lives. He'll send somebody our way. He'll put somebody in our lives who we, we look at and they love Jesus. Something's going on in their lives and it does something to us. It, it, it kind of provokes something within us in a good, godly way to go, man, I want what they have. The work that God's doing in them, God, I want you to do that with me. God, I see them making these renewed commitments. I see them living out these, these spirit-filled lives, but God, that's, I don't see that in my life, but God, if you could do it with them, God, would you do it with me as well? Nehemiah was the first to sign it. And then with Nehemiah, the priests, the Levites, so the, the, all the, the spiritual leaders there, or, or a, a portion of them at least, who were putting their names on here, and the leaders of the people who, who signed and sealed this covenant, notice that they did it in a very public way. Eighty-four total names are listed in these verses. It meant something. There was a cost involved with these people putting their names on this covenant because now they would be held accountable to carry out the commitments in this covenant. Isn't it a lot easier to like have somebody be the one that puts their name on something? And you're just like a part of the team. You're part of the group. So it's kind of like if something goes down, this happens in work sorts of situations, right? Like if something goes down, it's like, whose name was on the project? Then you're kind of just, you step back. Spotlight on that person, right? When you're the person, though, you're like, man, it, there's an accountability. My name's on something. I've, I've committed to do something. Like, man, there's accountability now attached to this thing that's, that's happened. And that was true for these, these people who signed it. But they, they went further than just putting their names down. We see the details of this commitment of the people in the following verses. So verses 28 through 31, let's read those. Verse 28, now the rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes, 
We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. First, in verses 28 and 29, we see that it wasn't just Nehemiah and the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the people who are making this commitment to the Lord, but we see that the rest of the people, all the other priests who didn't put their names on there, all the other Levites, including the gatekeepers and the singers and the Nethanim, all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had understanding. Like, every person who understood what was going on was on board with it. I mean, there were some, they're too young to understand. Of course, they're, they're not, you know, the three-year-olds weren't making this commitment. I'm going to separate, and I'm going to keep the Sabbath and the produce of the land. And I don't know why I took a British accent all of a sudden. But, you know, and Cheryl's like, that was a terrible British accent. I'm sorry. I apologize, Cheryl. <laughs> so bad. Um, everyone with understanding, all these people joined with their brethren and nobles to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now, we might initially, immediately kind of go like, why would they enter into a curse? Occur, can't you just say, we entered into an oath. We entered into this oath. We made, an, we made a promise to the Lord. They're like, no, if we don't keep the, comp, the, the, the covenant, the promise, then Lord, we, we will bring a curse upon ourselves. Lord, we will take your correction. We will take your discipline. Lord, we will even take your judgment if we, didn't, if we don't carry out this oath, this promise that we're making to you. So this was pretty serious. Everyone who had understanding, young and old, rich and poor, nobles and the common people, the spiritual leaders and those who assisted them, joined together, were committed to making this covenant to their God. They were committed to walking in God's law, His commandments, His ordinances, His statutes. Like if there was a, a word to be used in reference to the law of God, they, they're using it here commandments statutes ordinances statutes let's let's do this understand the jewish people had made corporate sorts of covenants or commitments to the lord in the past and had broken their commitments to the lord many many times over but the failures of their people in the past did not stop them from making a new commitment to their God in the present, even though, as we'll see in chapter 13, they're going to they're gonna struggle, they're going to fail in different ways in, in keeping these commitments that they're making even now. You know, I, I think there's some different ways that we can look at, like, making a commitment to the Lord, because I think in, in some ways, we don't want to fall into sort of a legal sort of dynamic with the Lord, where we're like, okay, if I make, then I'm like holding myself to this standard that I've made, and I have this commitment, and so we do need to be careful on that sort of thing. But I think there is a, there's a good, godly, spirit-led sort of commitment that you and I can make. I believe Daniel is a good example of this where he got 
you know, he got taken from Israel, he brought to Babylon, and he's now being told that he's got to drink and eat and do all these things that were contrary to what he had grown up and being told in under Mosaic law, the things of dietary restrictions. And, and so it, we're told that Daniel purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to defile himself. And I think there's a real good godly, spirit-filled example for us in purposing in our heart, not in our own strength, not in some legal sort of relationship or, or dynamic to say, Lord, by your grace and the power of your spirit, I am not going to do that, and Lord, I'm going to do this. Lord, I'm going to follow you. Lord, I'm, I'm going to walk in purity before you. I'm not going to look at these things. I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to take this in. Lord, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to, but Lord, at the same time, I want to. I'm going to do these other things. Lord, I'm committed to you. Lord, I'm committed to honoring you and obeying you and glorifying you with my life. And I think the, the, the thought, the threat of failure keeps us at times from setting any sort of commitment before the Lord. Well, like, these guys failed time and again. They're going to fail two chapters from now. So why would, I mean, I might as well just not make it. I'll just kind of live day by day, hope, hope that I live a holy life, hope that I honor and please the Lord, hope I bring Him glory, hope my life is useful to Him. But is that really what God is desiring for us? Just kind of a haphazard daily walk where we're just kind of like, maybe I'll sin today, maybe I won't. I think there is a good example here for us. In spite of the failure, the impending failure, because you and I are going to sin, we're going to make mistakes to be able to see that there are good commitments for us to make to the Lord and should make to Him. Now, we could think that these people were foolish for making another oath to God, given their track record. But their hearts were humbled and softened. They were broken and repentant. And out of a time of corporate prayer and fasting and confession and worship, I would say all the right ingredients to be in the right posture of heart to make any sort of commitment to the Lord came this desire to make this covenant before God. Their hearts were in the right place. They were seeking to respond to what the Spirit of God was working inside of them the best that they knew how. And there's a lot to commend these people for and a lot we can learn from their example here. And we learn from good examples and bad examples, don't we? Sometimes we, we learn better by the bad examples of others. Like, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do what they did. But what if we had more good examples to go off of? We could be those people by the grace and power of God. So we saw who was involved in the making of this covenant, this commitment to the Lord, verses 28 and 29. But in verses 30 and 31, we see what was included in that covenant, that commitment they made. In verse 30, they made a, a renewed commitment to not give their daughters in marriage to the peoples of the land, nor take the daughters of the people of the land for their sons. Now, this was 
very specific for them because it was written at a time where arranged marriages were how marriages happened. Giving your daughter or your son, like that's how they were, they weren't going and like choosing a spouse for themselves. The parents were the ones who were setting that up. So the parents had a responsibility for the holiness and the purity and the godliness of the marriages that would be formed. So it's a little different from nowadays. Now, there are still arranged marriages that are happening in our world today. It's not uncommon. But for us, it would fall more on the responsibility of the individual, of seeing that, as Paul spoke about in his writings to the Corinthian believers, like, we aren't to be unequally yoked. There is a desire of God to see people come into the covenant of marriage on the same page spiritually before the Lord. Because he knows what's going to cause a marriage to flourish. He knows that if there's someone who comes into that marriage who's not on the same page as the other person, one person is, has a relationship with Jesus and somebody else doesn't. The, that conflicts, conflict and friction will be caused over time. There will be a, a pulling of desires. Well, I really want to raise our kids. Well, I don't really care. I don't want that for my kids. And, or what you prioritize with your finances, what your, your value system is. Like You want to have somebody, and I'm speaking more to the single people here, even in our church, but to have somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. To be clear, this was not in any way a racial issue. It was a spiritual issue. See, intermarrying with the non-Jewish people and the nations around them would mean inviting in the influence of the false gods and the pagan worship practices of those people into their homes, and those, those false gods and those pagan worship practices would not stay in the home. They would affect the rest of the family and influence society. Which clearly from Israel's past was the path back into idolatry and rebellion to the Lord and all kinds of problems. I mean, Solomon... No one rivaled him in wisdom. Being a man who God gave this amazing wisdom to, but he, he brought, himself, brought to himself wives, which obviously in the first place, a, a, a multiplying of wives was the first problem, the first mistake. But he multiplied wives even to himself who did not worship Yahweh, and those women led Solomon's heart away from the Lord. You know, we could think ourselves really wise in certain ways in our lives. But I, I will say this to us. Satan is deceptive. There's a lot of wise people who do really foolish things. And man, don't we need the Lord? Just, we need his help. They, these parents, these people hadn't done a great job in the past of protecting the worship life of their homes, 
their families. They'd been guilty of intermarrying with the people of the lands around them, but now there was this renewed commitment to do things God's way, and it had to start in the home. But isn't that always true? It always needs to start in the home. What's going on in our home? What's the worship life of our home? God cares so much about that. But, but added to this renewed commitment to do things God's way in the home was a renewed commitment to do things God's way when it came to the, to the Sabbath day, Saturday, and the sabbatical year, which was a year of rest for the land that was to take place every seven years. This was part of what made the Jewish people set apart among all the other nations, and yet they had lost that distinction, that set-apartness by violating the Sabbath and the sabbatical year laws. And, you know, why? Why? Well, because no other nation was doing it. The Israelites were the weird ones. You mean, you guys just, you have a whole day where you don't make money? You just rest? You're not supposed to kindle a fire and... You go to synagogue and you worship the Lord, like, that's weird. And then every seven years you don't sow your ground? Like, you guys are weird. Now, again, just over time, we see how the Bible has always been right. A a year of rest, all these sorts of things. Or like a day of rest, like it actually uh, improves our Productivity, like overworking is not the key to success. (laughs) Um, Like God's always been right. Like society, science, all of that just catches up with what the Bible's already been saying for thousands of years. But but compromise for these people had crept in. Over time, they adopted the, the social and the business practices of the nations around them not working it and not buying things from others on the Sabbath day and also letting the land rest, not sowing the ground for a whole year every seven years, it required them to trust the Lord. This renewed commitment, though there were, there were practical reasons too behind God giving them these, these laws, was a commitment to trust the Lord and His provision and become the distinct, set-apart people he had called them to be, even if they felt alone in doing these things that no one else did. You know, the Christian life is a counter-cultural sort of life. Like, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we see the things that Jesus spoke about, it was like not, no one was looking at things that way. Bless, like, love my enemy? Bless those who curse me, pray for those who spitefully use me, do good. To what? Like, no, I like the eye for the eye and tooth for the tooth thing. That's, yeah, I have heard that said, Jesus. I I really, can I keep going with that one? (laughs) He's like, nope. Let's go deeper. Let's look at the heart. My way is different, Jesus would say. And the way for his people was to be different. The family unit was to be different. How they went about their business was to be different. How they worshipped 
was to be different. But their commitment to the Lord went even further to to making a renewed commitment regarding the house of God, which we're going to see in verses 32 through 39. And just a quick quick heads up here, and we'll, we'll see it more as we read through the verses. We're going to find the phrase, house of our God which is a reference here to the, to the rebuilt temple, right? We're going to find the phrase house of our God used nine times in these final verses. The reason for this emphasis on the house of God and the, and the commitments that people are going to make to take care of the house of God is seen at the end of verse 39. They didn't want to neglect. That word neglect could also mean to forsake or to leave behind the house of their God. And this is really important for us to keep in mind here as we look at these uh, last verses. So let's read verses 32 through 34 where we're going to find the people making a renewed commitment regarding the the temple tax and then the, the wood offering. Verse 32 says, Also, we made ordinances for ourselves to exact from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Notice, for the showbread, for the regular grain offering, for the regular burnt offering on the Sabbaths, the new moons and the set feasts, for the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of our God. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for bringing the wood offering into the house of our God according to to our fathers' houses at the appointed times year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. The the yearly temple tax was a reminder to the people of how God had redeemed and paid a price for their freedom. God had redeemed them. But this tax also helped pay the expenses of the ministry that happened at the temple so that the practical work of the house of God could be done as God desired it to be done. And beyond the temple tax, they cast lots to determine which father's house among the people would bring a wood offering at appointed times year by year so that the altar at the temple would never lack wood and would always stay burning so that sacrifices, worship could happen there at the temple continually. While the priests and Levites were the ones set apart by the Lord to be directly involved with the helping of the sacrifices to take place by the command of the Lord, all of the people were able to be used by the Lord through this wood offering to help make the sacrifices happen. Because without the wood, the fire would not happen. And God always wanted the altar to be lit. Not lit in like the modern, man, that altar's lit. Like some crazy worship going on at that altar. Some of you are like, Jared, you should have stopped before you... God used his people even in this very practical way by bringing wood to keep the worship life of his people going. And I love this. You think about us and, you know, we can think about what, what can we contribute? 
What has God called me to? Or what, is, what has he gave me the capacity for? Like, what kind of resources do I have? And um, like wood was such a basic thing. You didn't have to buy it. You go find it. You cut down a tree. Obviously, it took some work. It took some effort. But even the poorest people of the land could get wood. You might not be a priest. You might not be a Levite. You, if you weren't born into the tribe of Levi, you were immediately excluded from being involved in the sort of the, the doings, the spiritual life that happened at the house of God, right? That was reserved for, for that line, for the Levites. And then the priests, it had to be very specific. It had to be descending from the line of Aaron. So you could feel like kind of excluded, like, well, gosh, what, what can I do? How could I be involved with what God's doing there at the temple? How can I be a part of, of worshiping God? I mean, be, beyond bringing my sacrifice to the altar, how could I help other people worship the Lord? And I love the, the application here for us. You don't have to be, you don't have to be a pastor or a deacon to be involved in, in helping the worship life of his people flourish. Now, the getting of the wood, there, I, don't, I don't have like a great example off the top of my head for that. But what has God built into you? What has he put into your life? What Maybe a spiritual gift that he's given you. He's made you an encourager. You know what, you... You love to check up on people and, and pray for them and see how they're doing. Or maybe you have some, maybe you're really good at something and you're like, man, you know what? I'm, I'm really great. I've got a vocation. I, 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 I can do plumbing or electricity. I can, I'm a mechanic. So I could, you know what? I'm gonna, I, could be a, I could be a blessing to other people. I can, and to think about, Lord, for me, what is that bringing of the wood? to keep the, the fire of worship going in your church. What is that thing? What are those things that, Lord, you would stir me to bring as an offering to you? And I love that it was an offering. So even in the term, there's worship implied. What can we bring? How might God use us to help others flourish in how they worship the Lord? I would encourage you. And encourage me myself even to say, Lord, what is that what is that wood offering? What is that wood offering that I can bring? That God, you would use me to help the worship life of your people really flourish. But moving on, verses 35 through 39. We're gonna we're gonna make it through these verses today. It's a lot of verses, but we're doing it. Next week it's gonna be even more. We're gonna do two chapters. You're like, whoa, I'm going to watch online. Maybe the live stream will get messed up. Anyways, someone was telling me they watched one day. I was reading through all these names, and then the, the live stream stopped right before the names were being read. It's like they felt like maybe they were blessed by the Lord or something. <laughs> I can't tell you one way or the other on that one because, you know, it did take me a while to read through all of them. Verses 35 through 39, we're going to find their renewed commitment regarding the first fruits and their, and their tithes. So, uh, verse 35, and we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all, of our, uh, of all, all fruit of all trees, year by year to the house of the Lord. 
to bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, to bring the firstfruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil, to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God. You see this reoccurring phrase? To bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our farming communities. And the priests, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel, verse 39, and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain, of the new wine, and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. In verses 35 and uh, verses 35 through the, the first part of verse 37, we, we see their renewed commitment to bring their, their first fruits. The ground, the fruit of the trees, their, their sons and their cattle, which given with that, it's not said here, but part of law was you bring your firstborn son, that son was not sacrificed like an animal would be. You would have to redeem that child by the giving of a sacrifice. The firstborn of herd and flock, dough, and all the sourdough bread makers say amen as the dough. Their offerings, the fruit of all kinds of trees, the new wine and the oil, and they're bringing it to the priests. All, all of it's going into the storerooms of the house of God. This was to be done year by year according to the law of God. In other words, it was to keep going. There wasn't like a, a, an ending date here. What we find in those verses is that God wanted His people to give Him their first and their best, not their leftovers and the discards. Giving the first and best of what He had given to them and blessed them with in the first place because all of it came from Him to begin with. And just thinking about, like, how we conduct ourselves, like how we go about our lives, what we spend our time on, what we spend our money on, like what we invest in relationally and, and spiritually and physically. Like, I, I, I just, I want us to consider this morning with just like a fresh perspective, and this isn't meant to be like, this isn't a condemning sort of word. But for us to be able to take a sort of a step back and take inventory and just say, Lord, do I give you my first and my best? Think about each day of your life. Does, does God truly get your first and your best? Think of your week as a whole. Does he get your first and your best? I, I think about how people don't prioritize and so in that sense, neglect the house of their God. And this is not, people have good, re like I know even this morning, multiple people are sick. There's people out of town. That's not, that's not to say that th those aren't valid things. But for some people, sort of the practice of their life is sort of a, a there's a constant underlying neglect 
of the house of God in their life. It's just not a priority for them. If it works, if it fits in their schedule, they'll do it. And, and we approach maybe our devotional life to the Lord in the same way sometimes. If it fits into my schedule, I'll do it. Or you know what, God, I give my best to my work and I'm going to give my best to my family. And then when I'm half asleep, I'm going to try to read a proverb. Again, this is not, I'm not, this is not meant, like, I'm not trying to jab any of you, because these are, these are real things, like, these are real things for our lives, this is real for my life. Like, do we, do we, like, plan out our day, plan out our week, and they were like, oh, man, I had, like, 2% of my time, I'm going to give that to the Lord. Oh, something kind of, like, something opened up, God, I'm going to fit you right in. It, that happens with, this, with our offerings to the Lord. We'd rather give God like the three-legged sheep, the mutilated calf, like the, no one wants, no one even wants to look at that thing because it's so bad and it's gaunt and like, ugh, like, ah, ugh. keep walking. It doesn't even have a name. That one's not even named because it's just like, wow. That's... Lord, I'm going to give that one to you. But we kind of like, we'll do that with the Lord. We give him what's not much of a sacrifice. Or maybe we don't value it that much. It's like, well, perfect. I'll give that to him. Does he need it? He doesn't need it. He owns the cattle on a thousand hill. Does he need it? No, he doesn't need it. Does he deserve it? Yeah, he deserves it. Through all of these first fruit offerings to the Lord, yes, it was an act of worship, but it was also part of how God provided for the needs of the priests and the Levites who he had set apart for the purpose of serving him at the temple their lives were completely dedicated to serving at the house of God. And so them, their families, those within that, that clan, those that served, they were able to eat. They had substance. This is part of what God used this first fruit offerings for. But in verses 37, the, the last part of verse 37 through verse 39, we see their renewed commitment to bring their tithes to the Levites who were to receive the tithes in all the farming communities we're told the priests, the descendants of Aaron, were to be with the Levites when the Levites received the tithes, and the Levites were to bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house. house <laughs> tithes. I was really trying to enunciate the tithe because I kept feeling I was saying tithes. 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 The Levites were to bring up a tenth of the tithes. To the house of God, to the rooms of the storehouse where the grain and the new wine and the oil were to be kept. These were things that people had neglected doing in the past, but that they wanted to make a renewed commitment to do at the moment and continue to do moving forward. Seeing that part of how the worship life of their people was going to flourish 
was connected to them giving to the work of God so that God's house and the ministry at his house was supplied with everything that was needed for him to be worshipped the way that he deserved. And this might bring up for some of us questions regarding tithing. I'm not going to go in depth on that right now. I don't have time for that. If you want to hear sort of more, a more in-depth teaching on tithing or biblical tithing or New Testament even tithing, I, I gave a teaching last year uh, titled The Blessedness of Giving from Acts 20, verses 33 through 35. Acts 20, 33 through 35, Blessedness of Giving. You can find it in our Acts series, uh, topical teaching pages of our website and our church app. But I like what we're in beer, we, Beersby. I like, I can't talk. Let's move this thing on because it's really getting bad. But I like what Warren Wearsby said regarding these specific verses here as he kind of gave a greater application. He said, while there is no express command of the New Testament that God's people should tithe today, proportionate giving is certainly commended. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 3. We are stewards of God's wealth and must make wise use of what he shares with us. 1 Corinthians 4 verses 1 and 2. If people under Old Testament law could bring three tithes, this is what we see here in this section of Nehemiah, he says, uh, how much more ought we to give today who live under the new covenant of God's abundant grace? See 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 and note the repetition of the word grace. He said, tithing can be a great blessing, but those who tithe must avoid at least three dangers. First, he says, giving with the wrong motive, out of a sense of duty, fear, or greed. If I, if I tithe, God must prosper me. Second, thinking that they can do what they please with the 90% that remains. And then third, giving only the tithe and failing to give love offerings to the Lord. But he went on to say, in light of all that God has done for us, how can we rob him of the offerings that rightly belong to him? God didn't forsake his people when they were in need, Nehemiah 9.31. And they promised not to forsake the house of God, as we just saw in chapter 10, verse 39. Years before, the prophet Haggai had rebuked the people because they were so busy taking care of their own houses, they had neglected the house of God, Haggai chapter 1, verse 4. And this warning needs to be heralded today. Where there is true spiritual revival, he says, it will reveal itself in the way we support God's work beginning in our own local church. It isn't enough to pray or even commit ourselves to faith promises or pledges. We must so love the Lord that generous giving will be a normal and joyful part of our lives. Just love that. I thought that was so good. You know, the Lord has always used the, the, the tithing, the giving, the generosity of His people to keep the work of His house going. And the work of his kingdom in this world continuing. And I, I praise God for the, the cheerful, generous, faithful giving of his people here at Calvary Chapel Walnut Creek. People who have been stirred by the Holy Spirit to make sure his house here isn't neglected. That the work and the ministry of God through this local church is able to continue as he desires. But look, the, the revival the Lord was bringing about here in, in Nehemiah's day was not even a revival to completely new things. It wasn't new words from the Lord. It wasn't a new set of rules. It was, it was none of that. It was actually a revival to return 
to old things, to things that God had spoken long ago in the past. This renewal of obedience was a return to doing things and seeing things and prioritizing things that God had wanted them to do and see and prioritize all along, but that they had forgotten or been ignorant about or neglected to do or maybe just plain disobeyed. Now, I'm confident that there were some among the greater population of Israelites who were already committed to the Lord before this, but largely the nation had left behind many things that God never wanted them to leave behind in the first place. And here we're finding them wanting to come back to those things the Lord never wanted them to leave behind, wanting to do things God's way, wanting to be God's people, and wanting to prioritize God's house. And added to all the other aspects of revival we've considered since the beginning of chapter 8, the work of revival that God is wanting to do and wanting to continue to do in our lives by His Spirit, through His Word, includes Him wanting to bring about renewed obedience in our lives, renewed commitment, that we will want to do things God's way, that we will want to be God's holy people, and that we will want to prioritize His house, His church. Another way we could put that is that God's work of revival is often a work of refocusing and reprioritizing us. Because our focus can easily shift away onto other things, and our priorities can easily get out of order from where they should be. And maybe what's needed in our lives as we've considered this principle of revival that Ellen Redpath mentioned is a renewal of our obedience, that He would help us to have and keep a right focus and have right priorities as we seek to abide in and live for Jesus Christ. I believe God is wanting to do that today. I think it's easier for us to want some new thing. God, give me some new thing that I'm supposed to do. And you know what he often is saying? No, do the thing that I've already said. <laughs> do the things that I've already left for you in my word. Will he give us new things? Sure he will. But oftentimes we don't ever see the new things because we, we never were willing to do the old things, those foundational things, that he still looks at us and goes, do it. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. I know the worship team come back up. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are a good God. God, in spite of our failures, our struggles, our focus that gets off at times, Lord, our priorities that get out of whack. In spite of us, Lord, at times offering you Lord, our, our, our last and our least. Neglecting, Lord, the things that you want us to actually prioritize at, a, at sort of the top of our list. God, thank you that you're a gracious, merciful, patient, forgiving God. And this morning, Lord, for us that God, if we find ourselves in a place where we're in need of a, new, a renewal of, of obedience, Lord, 
uh, a writing of our, of our focus or priorities. That God, you don't cast us away because we've blown it so many times in the past in these areas. But Lord, you, you have new mercies available for us today. And so God, you see the, the state of your people's hearts. And Lord, those that have been seeking to walk in obedience and Lord, this morning that you would just let them know that you're pleased. <laughs> you're pleased with them. God, that you'd give them even more grace, continued power from your spirit to, to live a life that's pleasing to you, to do things your way, to be your holy man or woman, to not neglect your house. But God, would you be at work in our lives? God, would you be Lord of every part of us, Lord? Not just part of the things that, uh, not just Lord of the things that we're willing to let you be Lord over. And God, would we be a people, Lord, who help others flourish in their worship of you? God, help us even this morning to see, God, what are those wood offerings? What are those things that, that you would have us to to grab a hold of and bring to your house so that that altar of worship keep, keeps burning, Lord. So that the worship, Lord, can, can continue to an even greater degree. Lord, would you bless your people, Lord? You know where they're at. Lord, you know areas of struggle. And God, I pray, Lord, for those that Maybe this was more of a, a convicting or correcting word that, Lord, you would give grace in the conviction and correction. That, God, you would strengthen. They wouldn't feel defeated to even try to make any sort of commitment to you. But, Lord, that they would see that you have grace for them today. Lord, you have given them the power of your spirit, Lord, to live out the things that you've called us to in your word. And so, God, would you meet each one Lord, would you help us to arrange our schedules, Lord, our, our finances, the, the time that we spend, uh, the relationships that we have, Lord, where, Lord, we, we do truly give you our best and our first. God, lead us in these things. Lord, this isn't a legalistic sort of thing. It's just, Lord, are we truly honoring you in the way that you deserve to be honored? And so, God, would you, Lord, have your way in each of our lives. God, would there be something about our lives, even if it seems weird to other people, like the Israelites keeping a Sabbath day and letting the land rest for a year every seven years, but that, God, you would use our godly weirdness to attract people to the person, the glory, the salvation of Jesus Lord, use our, use our uniqueness. Lord, make us a distinct, set-apart people. Lord, if we've lost our set-apartness, Lord, our distinctiveness as your people, then God, bring change, please. And Lord, we just thank you. We love you. God, we're, we're thankful that you're a God who is worthy of our worship, Lord. That you're a God who is present and accessible, you're a God who has called us to come boldly to your throne of grace where we could find mercy and grace to help in our times of need.
And Lord, this morning, would we run to you? Lord, this week, God, would we live for you? God, make us examples. Lord, make us witnesses. Lord, give us boldness to share the love of Jesus and give us your love, Lord, that we can love others with the love of Jesus. And if there's anybody here and you've not just first opened your heart to Jesus Christ, maybe you've never received his free gift of salvation, I, I just encourage you to, to open up your heart even now. If that's, if that's you, that you'd be willing to just stand where you're at so I could pray for you. If that's anybody here in this room and you would go, you know what? I want Jesus to save me. I want my sins forgiven. I want to know that I am a new creation in Christ Jesus, that my guilt, my shame has been washed away. Lord, as we respond now in these songs of praise, Lord, would you continue to lead us? Lord, would our worship this morning come from hearts that are truly surrendered to you? And God, with this time, bless you, Lord God. Would it bless you, Lord? Would it please you? We thank you, Father. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.